0: The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Monday, April 30th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It is very important to Donald Trump, Mr. Trump, President Trump, that you appropriately credit his accomplishments. This is why Anthony Scaramucci, appearing on Reliable Sources, and perhaps giving lie to the title of that show, made a very specific claim. You have to remember, the president's a television star. He was on uh, NBC for 15-plus years, award-winning show. Award-winning? Now, which awards? I was wondering. I checked. Zero Emmys. That's pretty famous. He did win awards, or The Apprentice did win awards from from ASCAP and BMI, The Music Licensing Company. For a second, I thought he won a uh, Body Mass Index Award, but no. BMI, The Music Licensing Company. And how their awards work is every year they give an award to the top watched show in each category. So it's not uh, voted on. It's just whichever show had the highest ratings. The couple years that The Apprentice had the highest ratings, they won this music award from ASCAP and BMI. Was there any other awards? I searched and I found one. The Apprentice won one other award, and I guess this is the award Scaramucci was referring to. The Apprentice won the gold derby.com award for Best Reality series one one year. So award-winning show, an award-winning show. that award-winning show is a reference to the gold derby.com award. And I think we all have to admit that is clearly. Not good enough for the high quality Donald Trump. Luckily, there is another award possibility being floated. That's very nice. Thank you. Nobel, Nobel. Were they thinking about Donald Trump's work in particle physics? No, groundbreaking though it was, the crowd in Michigan totally spontaneously chanted Nobel. Well, spontaneously, Given that Trump paused as he heard two guys chanting Nobel, and then he said Nobel, and then the whole crowd joined in, Nobel, Nobel. But you know, today, South Korea's president said, yeah, give Trump the Nobel too. Why not? Months before actual negotiation, just give him the Nobel. Nobel, Nobel. By the way, aren't you nominating a key figure in the CIA torture program to head the CIA? Nobel, Nobel. Look, Arafat won the Nobel Prize. It's not like these prizes are totally unsullied. And look at the guy himself, Alfred Nobel, the story goes, saw an obit for himself that a newspaper had run incorrectly. And the newspaper called him, Alfred Nobel, who invented dynamite, the merchant of death. So he got all freaked out and he founded the philanthropic prizes. So... I say, let's give Trump the Nobel. Why not? I mean, today, he met with Nigerian president, Muhammadu Bahari, and I just know that if someone in that crowd, while he was meeting the Nigerian president, had started in on a chant that went, Ibrahim Prize for Achievement in African Leadership, Ibrahim Prize for Achievement in African Leadership, that that would have caught on too, and he would have reveled in that equally. On the show today, I spiel about the White House Correspondents' Dinner. If you have young children, you will want to quarantine them in a soundproof chamber. Ugly, aggressive, unappetizing stuff. And I am not just talking about reaction shots of Matt Schlapp. No. No. That was low rent. That was so low rent. Scott Pruitt's considering staying there next month. No. Hi-yo. Just outrageous jokes for an outrageous time. But first, the elderly. Our seniors those seeking to live out their advanced years peacefully. That category of American actually hardly exists at all, but they are marketed to as some sort of frail monolith, if they are marketed to at all. We'll be joined by the founder and director of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Age Lab, which you know is cutting edge because there is not even a space between age and lab. Joe Coughlin, space between Joe and Coughlin, joins me next. Birth, school, work, death. Those were the lyrics to a song by the Godfathers. They were a really cool young band. Oh, wait. I looked to see when that song came out. It was 1988. I guess it just means that I'm getting old. That is the inevitability of life, but I've got something to look forward to. It's a reconsideration of what it means to age and to be old, mostly from a marketing point of view, but really everything. The name of the book is The Longevity Economy, Unlocking the World's Fastest-Growing, Most Misunderstood Market. Joseph F. Coughlin, the founder and director of the MIT Age Lab, is the author. Hello, Joe. How are you? Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, you know, America has its faults, but I never thought that one of its faults was a huge sector of society to market to that marketers and product manufacturers fail to consider. How is it that the oldest among us are the most ignored among us?
1: Well, we can, this is just one more thing we can put into the blame the boomers box. If you think about it, they are the people that the, our parents warned us about And they taught business that, frankly, if you can get the 18 to 35 market, allegedly, you'll have them for life. So they said, market youth, youth, youth. Well, now that the boomers are well over 60, guess what? They're now reaping what they've sown. Business is still looking at the young age where there may be some numbers, but there's certainly no money. So that old idea, you know, the,
0: the demo, they call it in TV, and it changes a little. It starts at 18 and it ends at, you know, maybe 34, maybe 49. But over that, from what I understand, the idea is you don't need to advertise to them or they're not as valuable to you because their choices are locked. They're not going to be open to a new brand. If they use Tide, they're going to continue using Tide. Is that totally wrong, or are you saying that the sheer number of people, even if most of them don't change, it's still worth trying to get them to change
1: to uh, whisk? Well, there's two two things going on here. One, uh, we've got such a large market there that it's worth trying. But the second thing is, is that we know that that is no longer true. That was perhaps our grandfather's old age. But today, just ask the auto industry, who now has revolutionized by buying foreign cars for people who that grew up and relished the idea of buying American cars. So loyalty, brand loyalty in particular, is no longer, shall we say, something we can bank on, frankly, at any generation. Now, is that
0: because when a brand is seen is associated with the old, it's dead. You know, this is not your father's oldsmobile is a viable slogan just because, you know, no marketer wants to be associated with your father's anything or old person's anything.
1: And by the way, the kicker is neither does an older person. In fact, as I write in my book, the older adults uh, in marketing and the automobile industry used to say the following that you cannot make an old man's car because a young man and frankly, a young woman will not buy it. But here's the corollary. Neither will an old man or an old woman. In fact, there are very few products that have age on the label that older adults want themselves. The idea is how do we reinvent a story and lifestyle and experiences that excite and delight across the lifespan?
0: Well, you know, there's another interesting thing that I often think about. The average lifespan in America
1: is, what, 79? 79. Yeah, right now we're looking well into our 70s. But imagine this, though: life expectancy in 1900 was 47. That's right. a whole new spin on life stage midlife crisis. So that's eye opening. But the thing that's even more eye opening is average life expectancy is the
0: average, so it takes into account everyone who died in a war or you know uh, infant mortality. Once you hit 65, or once you hit 60, I mean, you probably have the numbers at your fingertips. You're really likely, let's say 65. Once you hit 65, you're quite likely to live to 85.
1: Yeah, very, very much. In fact, on average, again, with the caveats that you put there, we're looking at another seven years of life expectancy after 65 since 1900. And in Japan, we're looking at female life expectancy being 89. We're suddenly being 90. It's kind of oh hum. It's not worth a note on TV. So this means to people who think
0: about such things, this means, well, our retirement age should be pushed back you know, and we think about this in terms of the government, should we start paying social security at 62? But even for the private citizen, you know, if it was the case you were going to retire at 62 and expect to live 12 years, that's one thing. If you're going to expect to live 90 years, you better
1: work to, till you're 70. Is that part of the equation? So in di- in, uh, in addition to writing a new story uh, and, and new products and services and experiences for an aging society, or frankly, for a 100 year lifespan, we also re- need to renegotiate that contract, social contract around the future of work. And one of the things we are finding is that the number one thing that a lot of people are saying they're going to do in retirement, guess what? Work, even if it's part time. So when it comes to entitlements and public policy, I'm afraid we're going to have to get a lot more personal. For someone like you and I who get paid by writing and talking, frankly, working for decades longer, maybe we ought to consider it. But for those people who truly work for a living, that is lifting bricks, driving trucks, and building buildings, retirement may be a different discussion for them altogether. Yeah, as you know,
0: the old economy where your body breaks down and manual labor was just that, it's one equation. So actually I'm a little optimistic that yeah, the manu- manufacturing base has eroded and we're transitioning and with the transition comes a lot of problems but we're transitioning to a different kind of economy, you know, a knowledge economy, that will probably enable us to work longer just from a
1: physical standpoint. And and if you start thinking about the technologies, the co- Robotics and robotics, rather than being job takers, they could become job makers for all of us that may envision a 50, 60, 70 plus year of life work. So this is how this is how I assess
0: that our society has come to grips thus far with all the trends you write about. And it's embodied in the idea that 50 is the new 40, or you see these women who are the the uh, real housewives of whatever town dressing and acting like they're 20 years younger. So basically, what we've done is we've redefined age down a little bit. So 60-year-olds act like 50-year-olds used to act, and 40-year-olds sometimes act like children. But is that really progress? I mean, I think that we need a new reckoning for what the new 70 means, and I don't want the answer to be the old 45.
1: No, absolutely, and in fact, I wish we would trash all the the uh, uh, fifty is the new forty or the new thirty, whatever number you want to have. In fact, no, fifty is the new fifty. The fact is is that the old guys that taught me how to fish—I remember upstate New York on Lake Ontario—that were I thought these old men teaching me how to go fishing out there. I did the math. You know those old men? They were only about forty-two years old. So no, what we're looking at now is better health, better, more education. Uh, technologies that make us able to do things we could not do in older age. And frankly, the biggest generation gap today, expectations. We expect to live longer and we expect to live better. So you placed the blame at the feet of the baby
0: boomers, but don't some millennials, some people my age, Generation X, I mean, we all have a bit of blame to share if we consign a class of people to a category of irrelevant. At the same time that everything that you're, go, that you're writing about is going on, and at the same time that you're saying, you know, we're not being imaginative enough in creating products that fit in with the realities of the life of people over 70 or 80. So whether it's a cool kind of hearing aid or not even thinking of it as a hearing aid or just books with bigger fonts, we're not doing that. But it's at the same cultural moment that we think of people who we used to say, you know, have Asperger's syndrome. We think of them and we use the phrase, they're neurologically atypical. We're making all these accommodations in terms of trans bathrooms, right? We're taking into account that people aren't all the same Except when it comes to this giant cohort of the population where so many of us aren't even
1: challenging ourselves to think differently about them. Yeah, we, we have had well over 100, 150 years just to keep it in a somewhat modern context of really defining old age around a mythology, around uh, what was one time a medical theory of vital energy, that you were only born with a certain amount of energy. And when you use it up good or bad ways that you may have used it, particularly bad ways, you have then used up your time. You have become old. The president still believes that, by the way. That's why he doesn't exercise. Yeah, well, apparently I'm not kidding. He does. He does. <laughs> yeah. But the but, you know, Think about what came out of those stories around vital energy. We went from poorhouse or almshouse to nursing home, uh, you know, almshome, nursing home, and of course, after that, we know funeral home. So we've got such a strong lock, whether you're a millennial or Gen Z, all the way up to the oldest baby boomer, of believing that old age is the end, when in fact, it's one third of your adult life. And we as a society need to make that productive, not because it's nice, but because it's necessary. Who do you look to as the leading
0: lights in this field? Who is creating a product or redefining age e- on either end of the 60 or 70-year-old spectrum? Maybe it's a young person who's thinking forward. Maybe it's an old person who's not living the way that, you know, society tells
1: them to live. You know, I, I think you're seeing things that, such as that were not necessarily made for older adults. So a well-designed tablet makes it possible for me to take off my glasses and crank up the font and be able to read it without being a, an old man carrying a computer that needs his glasses to be able to see it. So some of the tech folks are actually getting it. On the other hand, there are some of the tech folks that believe it's all about pill reminder systems and buttons to help me get up. The auto industry in some cases is getting smarter. They're really thinking about things that are making it easy and and comfortable that help people across the lifespan. But you may be you may find this interesting. The millennial lifestyle that we are saddling young people with that we're saying is everything is on demand, that they are uh, sharing rides and having food delivered, things that are often criticized by the aging generation, these folks may actually be introducing a lifestyle that becomes a virtual assisted living for those who are affluent because they can afford it or for those who may be living alone and therefore need it. So suddenly what we're finding is that what we have been putting down as baby boomers of what younger people like actually may be the very lifestyle that not only we aspire to, but the lifestyle that we will need to age well and to live longer better.
0: The longevity economy, unlocking the world's fastest growing, most understood market. Joseph F. Coughlin, founder and director of the MIT Age Lab, is the
1: author. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. This is fun.
0: And now the spiel. When Stephen Colbert lost the room at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2006, I laughed. When Larry Wilmore did it a few years ago, I also laughed. And one of the reasons is they were doing what comics are supposed to do. They were addressing uncomfortable issues with jokes. Of course, I also laughed when Jimmy Kimmel hosted the Oscars the first time around, even though he had fun with Mahershala Ali's name and lifted a little kid up a la The Lion King. Manola Dargis did not like that. She went further in her review in The Times, saying that the Academy's efforts at inclusion seem hollow, quote, when a straight white male host jokes about no one seeing a movie from a black director about gay men. See? I thought that Jimmy Kimmel was addressing the issue that Moonlight was the least seen best picture winner ever. That's the sort of thing that a comedian is supposed to do. This whole thing about comedians doing what they're supposed to do. I, I also laughed, and I'm sure some people would be upset with me for laughing at a lot of the Dave Chappelle jokes about transgendered people. Some of them were offensive. A lot of them were, you know, just incorrect, I think, from a uh, factual perspective. But that was his perception. He's a great comedian. I think he was doing what a comedian is supposed to do. And I didn't laugh at all when comedian Daniel Tosh made an infamous rape joke in 2012. And there were those who came to his defense saying, comedian's going to do comedy. But it wasn't funny. It's an important point. But then Patricia Lockwood wrote a poem called A Rape Joke. And I was, I was impressed. There was humor in the poem, but the overall impact uh, went beyond just laughing. But what did Patricia Lockwood do? She did what poets are supposed to do. And all of this brings me to Michelle Wolfe. Her routine at the White House Correspondents' Dinner on Saturday was not for the faint of heart, it was controversial and off color. Here's Jonathan Carl talking about it, playing one bit on ABC's This Week.
1: Trump campaign was in contact with Russia when the Hillary campaign wasn't even in contact with Michigan. <laughs> it's a direct play. It's so close.
0: That was comedian Michelle Wolfe at last night's White House Correspondents Dinner, one of the few jokes that we can play here this morning. Actually, that's not true. You could play almost all of her set. You could play this.
1: Trump's also an idea guy. He's got loads of ideas. You got to love him for that. He wants to give teachers guns, and I support that because then they can sell them for things they need, like supplies.
0: You could play this.
1: It's 2018, and I'm a woman, so you cannot shut me up unless you have Michael Cohen wire me $130,000. Michael, need- you can find me on Venmo under my porn star name, Reince Priebus. Reince just gave a thumbs
0: up. Okay. Ah. Reince did give the thumbs up, by the way. Reince was enjoying it. Most of the crowd really liked the entire set. It was actually funny. I thought it was funnier than Samantha Bee's routine last year at this alternative dinner where the point was to take the gloves off. On Saturday, Wolf hit hard at the administration and the jokes landed. But I guess they didn't land to all the people in the room. Oh, God, how I hate the people in the room. Chris Christie was in the room, and then he was in the studio next to Jonathan Carl, agreeing about how low Michelle Wolf went.
1: What she did last night to
0: Sarah Sanders, what she did to Kellyanne Conway, what she did to Ivanka Trump, I was struck, and so was my wife, who's sitting next to me, by the fact that this comedian, this female comedian, spent more time beating up on women last night than she did on men. That's not true. That's just not true. We wound up getting more truth from the comedian who ended on Flint doesn't have clean water than the analyst on the nonfiction news show. Turns out Wolf mentioned Trump 48 times, more than she mentioned all the other women combined. Went through the routine. Here are all the women she mentioned. Hillary Clinton, Kellyanne Conway, Ivanka Trump, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Ann Coulter, Mika Brzezinski, Rachel Maddow, and Megyn Kelly. That's eight. Eight women. Here are the men she mentioned. Roy Moore, Michael Cohen, Reince Priebus, Robert Mueller, Jake Tapper, Harvey Weinstein, Mike Pence, six times, Al Franken, Ted Kennedy, Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, Chris Christie, Jeff, pedophile Nazi doctor. I don't think that's a real person. Scott Pruitt, Jim Acosta, Anthony Bourdain, Sean Hannity, Morning Joe, Bill O'Reilly, Eric and Donald Jr. More than twice as many men as women. So stop this nonsense about beating up women and also the part about mocking appearances. Also untrue. Simply didn't happen. She made one joke, probably heard it everywhere, about Sarah Huckabee Sanders using lies as eyeshadow. shadow. That actually is a joke. It didn't really happen, but it's also not about her appearance. Not really. Now, a lot of people have said in defending Michelle Wolf. How can you complain about a comedian being in poor taste? Your administration has been in poor taste about name your issue or norm. I don't think that's actually the most exact and best point. It's better to note the many times the administration has said something horrible or shocking and use the specific excuse, oh, that was a joke about Obama founding ISIS or Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She does it too. Remember this? Was the president joking when he said this, or did he check his remarks out with the International Association of Police Chiefs, or maybe the attorney general?
1: I believe he was making a joke at the time.
0: So let's think about what's going on. There's this mass umbrage right now being taken because the comedian used jokes about the president's horrible policies, and that umbrage is being expressed by the same people who defend the president's policies with the explanation oh, but he should get a free pass because he was making a joke, and a free pass, therefore, is the proper reaction to jokes. But remember how up top I talked about how comedians do what they do, and that is their job. And I even mentioned Patricia Lockwood, the poet, doing what she does because that's her job. I think almost everyone in this story is actually doing their job, just that sometimes their jobs are kind of sad. Like conservative commentator Matt Schlapp getting all huffy and using the night to make a point about liberals being out of touch and winning elections based on that. That's what Matt Schlapp does. Jonathan Carl there, he didn't fake his umbrage. He was hosting this week on Sunday, but he was right up there on the podium on Saturday, and I was watching him, and he was horrified. He was genuinely horrified. Journalists like him, Andrea Mitchell, Mika Brzezinski, well, maybe not Mika. She did get personally skewered. But a lot of the establishment genuinely don't want their sources to be personally discomfited. It doesn't mean they're complicit or kowtowing. It means they yearn for a different time, a time when there was general comity between journalist and subject, and when no one in the public would look at that relationship and judge harshly. That time is gone. As I consider the correspondent dinner it seems like an institution that is in its own way as stale as the House or Senate. It seems like an eating club or a golf club that doesn't want to acknowledge realities and doesn't want to let in outside forces. This just isn't how the press relates to the administration or how the administration relates to the press. It just isn't. Fine, you and the press weren't the ones who changed it, but it's changed and it's gone. It's like there are some relationships that children have with their parents, adult children and their, and their parents, or within couples. And one side keeps saying, why can't it be like it was? It used to be better. And maybe that person's right, and maybe that person isn't. But the thing is, it's changed. And with these things, usually with these things, it's been changed for quite a while before anyone noticed. Well, one group who is good at noticing these things is comedians. And the good ones can play with it and can make us squirm a little, but can also make us realize some truths. So maybe Michelle Wolf drove a stake in the heart of the desiccated institution of the White House Press Association, how they invite public officials for a genteel roasting which is returned in kind. And doing away with this, it will free everyone up to do their jobs. There are many stories to cover out there. Stories that don't contain the word Trump. I mean, from what I hear, Flint still doesn't have clean water. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Biennemay, just producer, isn't a millennial. He's one Gen Xer short of a boomer. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, was thinking of changing her title to Golden Producer, but that smacks a little bit of a Lou Dobbs commercial. Steve Lickteig, executive producer of Slate Podcast, believes. It's not the years in your life, or even the life in your years, but it's the life in your ears, which is why he recommends you listen to the new podcast, Decodering. And also, join Slate Plus. Members get bonus segments, exclusive members-only podcasts, and more. Sign up for a free trial today at slate.com slash The gist, predicting right here that the next White House Correspondents Dinner will be the first to be hosted by Moomin' Oomperoo, depuroo, Peru, And thanks for listening. Muminchance! I saw Muminchance live. It was a bit in the 70s. You would watch Moominchance. They'd be on Merv Griffin. You'd say, "Ooh, where can I go watch Muminchance? A Swiss mask theater troupe who perform in surreal mask and prop oriented styles. <laughs> There's nothing not funny about Moominchance.